please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We are... Right on the eve in our uh, sermon series of the opening of this book, in which uh, many prophecies concerning the future history of the world are going to be unfolded before the eyes of the Apostle John and before our eyes. Things that were yet future to John, these are miracles of wisdom. John, at his point in history, could not have seen the uh, future of the Roman Empire or the rise of the Papal Roman Empire. And yet these things, as miracles of wisdom, would be revealed to him. But before we come to those things that were yet future to John, we find that this elder, one of the 24 gathered around the throne, has something of a sermon. And he preaches Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of prophecies that at this point, uh, in John's time, were ages old. He preaches Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the root of David, the one who has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. When we speak about uh, prophecy and this miracle of wisdom, remember the, the function that miracles were intended to serve. God sent out his word into the world, but we know that many men have come into the world claiming to speak for God. How can we be sure that this word comes from God indeed? we find that it was a rather normal method for God not only to send his word 
in the mouth of his agents, but also to send miracles, the testimony of the Holy Spirit that these men did indeed speak for God. So this miracle of wisdom, prophecy, and its fulfillment has an apologetic value. It is useful in sharing the faith with others. But during those seasons when we wrestle with unbelief, it is very useful in confirming our faith, reminding us and comforting us that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but that we have heard the very word of God confirmed from on high by the working of miracle and in prophecy, miracles of wisdom, foretelling the future, something that would have been impossible for men with their limited wisdom. Last week, we had an opportunity to start into that first prophecy alluded to here. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, couched as a lion, and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth, teeth white with milk. Two sermons ago, we began with the remote context for this magnificent prophecy. You remember after the first fall of mankind, the covenant of grace was preached to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the mediator of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ, that son that would be born to Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent, even while having his own heel bruised. A son has been promised. And I do uh, agree with those interpreters that say that this son was not only to be fully man, a son of Eve, but fully God, inasmuch as only God could cover them with respect to their sins. This promise passed from Adam through the line of Seth. Seth and his line were called the sons of God. And finally funneled into the single family of Noah, the only surviving family of all the earth. The promise came down through the line of Shem to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And now Jacob has 12 sons, and we might be wondering if we're to receive more information concerning this son and in what family he is to arise. And it's here in Genesis chapter 49 that we receive more information. That the promised one is going to come from the line of Judah. You should understand that this prophecy, again if we take Usher's reckoning, uh, this prophecy of Jacob is delivered in 1689 B.C. The first promise of the son was 4004 B.C. So the promise of the Son is now more than 2,300 years old. And that is a long time. It's already a prophecy very old in the earth. Jacob is dying. And he issues a prophetic blessing to his 12 sons. When he arrives at Judah, you might... Uh, suspect Judah is trembling because the blessing has not gone so well for the first three. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are blessed indeed inasmuch as they are not cut off from Israel and its inheritance, and yet they are not preferred. It is said that Simeon and Levi are going to be scattered and that Reuben will be unstable. Judah had participated in many of the same sins of his brothers and was likewise liable to judgment. And in here you see another example of God's election and sovereignty in his working. Uh, He, uh, according to the freeness of his grace, bestows a great and gracious promise upon Judah. Beginning with verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. We covered this last week. We notice here that Judah is promised a certain preeminence over his brethren. So the rule that would have normally belonged to Reuben, his firstborn, has come down to Judah. It is said here that... um, His brethren shall praise him. Judah is going to be a conqueror, but more than a general, he is going to be a king. His brothers are going to bow down before him and acknowledge his supremacy in Israel. All of this in the following history would be marvelously fulfilled. Judah would be the very first in the conquest. It's about 1425 B.C., more than 200 years in the future. The completion of the conquest would be under David, about the year 1042 B.C. Now the promise is 647 years old, and they would finally enter into their peace under Solomon, yet another generation later. And we find that Judah began as a general, but ended as a king. And ultimately, this fulfillment of uh, kingship would be uh, fulfilled in King Jesus. Jesus, who has been a king, uh, the like of which neither David nor Solomon could have even imagined. Not just the king of Israel, but the 
king of a people spread throughout all of the earth and subduing all of the earth to himself. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah who prevailed to open the book. We also looked at verse 9. Let's look again just very quickly by way of uh, review. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Here we are told something even more specific, and it makes it all the more wonderful. It is said here that Judah will ascend and come to the supremacy by degrees. And so we find it in history that Judah's uh, dominion was an ever-maturing dominion. Here characterized as beginning as a a whelp or a lion's cub and coming up into the maturity of a full-grown lion. And also the movement from prey to rest, taking the prey in the beginning, but entering into a rest that no one, no enemy dare disturb. And so here you see a certain ascendancy in the movement of this marvelous verse. And this is the way that it happened. Judah did start with a certain preeminence among his brethren in the conquest. Uh, If you want to look at this, uh, you can uh, take your time and read through Judges chapter 1. Who shall go up for us? They ask of the Lord. Judah shall go up first. There was a certain preeminence in this tribe in the conquest. But the conquest was not completed immediately. It would take almost... 400 years and in some ways never be as uh, uh, as perfect as it should have been due to Israel's disobedience. But David in his own history shows himself to be uh, this developing son of Judah in the sense that he begins as an obscure shepherd boy and rises to be the king of all Israel, but first in Hebron and then all Israel and the king, the like of which um, uh, Israel never knew another. You remember in the books of Kings, as you go through the history, the kings are constantly being compared back against David. David became the standard. But this was a work that took uh, some 383 years of development, a development that's alluded to in this ninth verse. Solomon would enter into peace, this aged lion that no enemy would even dare to uh, disturb for most of his career. But there would be a fulfillment in this beyond all of their expectation, because the final king of Judah, or arising from Judah, would be granted all authority in heaven and on earth, whose dominion cannot be resisted. And has gone far beyond the, the borders of Palestine. You can see why Jesus Christ would be preached by the elder as the lion of the tribe of Judah. With the definite article, Judah had many lions as kings. But he is the lion, the preeminent and the ultimate lion of the tribe of Judah. We come to verse 10 which is a a verse quite famous. Uh, 
and every bit as difficult as it is famous to arrive at a, a sound interpretation. But one very, very important, and together with the ninth verse, uh, is the uh, is really the focus of what the elder has in view. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The first part of the verse is not that difficult when it says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. If I were to ask you what a, uh, what would the scepter symbolize, it's an image of government and of authority. This becomes a, a confirmation of our interpretation of the previous two verses that Judah's not just going to be a general, but a governor and a king. But we're also told, or there's an illusion here, that Judah's rule is going to endure for a certain period of time. So there is some intimation here that Judah's rule and government is not going to uh, exist forever. And this becomes a very important thing in identifying the Messiah. Just put that in your pocket for the time being. The second clause here, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Mehokeik in Hebrew can be translated either a lawgiver uh, from Hakak, which would be something like uh, to, to issue a statute. So here it could be a lawgiver. It can also be a ruler's staff. So it might just simply be in parallel with scepter in the first clause, which would be a very common thing in uh, Hebrew poetry. I do, I do favor somewhat the idea of a ruler's staff and the image of the staff being between uh, his feet. There are images in the ancient Near East of kings sitting upon thrones, and the staff will be in his right hand, but the, the end of the staff will not be off to his right side. It will actually be between his feet, and he holds it like this at, at an angle. So this is a very common uh, image. But if the idea is uh, that of a lawgiver, a person, then the, the lawgiver being between his feet would be image of begetting, that there would be a perpetual succession of lawgivers and governors until Shiloh come. And now we come to the great difficulty. There are many possible interpretations of this name, Shiloh. I am going to relate to you what I consider to be the major five and tell you which one I prefer. But what is very interesting about all of them is that they all highlight aspects of the Messiah and his messianic work. And we should be clear that even before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Jews always interpreted this as a messianic oracle. Shiloh, whoever he is and whatever this might mean, was always interpreted as being Messiah. As a matter of fact, the three Targums, these were um, first century Jewish translations of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic. All three Targums simply translate uh, Shiloh as Messiah. So they don't attempt to uh, get to the bottom of the meaning of the word. They simply translate it as Messiah. So, 
in the Targums, it's the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor uh, the staff from between his feet until Messiah comes. But let me give you some possible explanations for this mysterious word. And I will simply pass by those that I think to be hardly even plausible. It could be that it is a slight modification of a Hebrew noun, shilya, which can mean anything from offspring to uh, afterbirth. Not a very pretty word in some ways, but probably here the idea would be would be something like offspring. The modification of the ending, as some interpreters have looked at this, the uh, the hey ending, which is just an H sound, Shiloh, sort of a breathy H at the end, is a, is a feminine ending. And so some have said that it would be something like until her offspring comes. But interestingly enough, the O sound, see, normally if it was just a pure feminine, you would get, you would get uh, shilha or shila. The A ending with the H end was the pure feminine. Here you have a, a mixed masculine O with that, which would be something like, translated like until his son come, his son, her son. And so some Christian interpreters have looked at this as an allusion to both the fact that he's going to be born of Judah, the O sound, but born of a virgin, the son that was promised to Eve, the fruit of the woman's womb apart from uh, natural generation. Uh, interesting, possible. To me, it feels like we're working awful hard here for the production of mysteries, but I thought it was at least one to consider. Some uh, that are a little simpler and a little bit more plausible in my mind. There is a, a Hebrew verb, shalah, which means to do prosperously. And so some have taken Shiloh to mean something like a prosperous or blessed hero, the blessed one that's going to appear, the prosperous one. And you do remember that in um, Isaiah 53, it said that all of the work of the Lord will prosper in Messiah's hand. So some have taken it as a, as a derivative of Shalah. A third possible rendering. Same sounds, although different verbal root. Shalah, to be at peace. Some have taken it as the man of peace. Which would be very interesting in this context because here you have Judah uh, portrayed as a, a man of conquest. And that there would be governors uh, in, in Judah until the man of peace appears. Possible. Uh, I think that this one is probably a little stronger than any of the preceding three. Although it's more complicated linguistically. Some have interpreted it and the Septuagint takes this uh, rendering. Until the one to whom it belongs comes. In other words, that the, the scepter is going to remain until its proper owner makes his appearance. This would come from actually two Hebrew words that have here been uh, blended together. Simply the she, which is a, um, uh, a relative uh, pronoun 
who or which, and lo, to him, until what is to him appears, or until that one appears who, uh, to whom all of this uh, belongs. Also possible, and uh, that interpretation we know goes back at least to the 4th century B.C. So it's a very ancient understanding of this. However, for my part, uh, and uh, uh, Poole takes this perspective as well, I think it is derived from the uh, Hebrew verb shalach, which means to send. And the Messiah is frequently referred to as the one who is sent or is coming in the name of the Lord to ideas that are very closely uh, related, the sent one or the coming one. And here, there is a subtle difference between shalah with the soft hay and shalah with the hard het, the guttural het. Um, but... Uh, the, the, uh, the exchanging of these two letters is not a thing uncommon in Hebrew. This is really not a difficulty at all. And inasmuch as Messiah is frequently given this title of the sent one or the coming one, uh, to me this seems to be the most likely explanation and gives some, give some uh, background as to where this title came from. Uh, just some, some examples for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3.34 Here uh, Jesus is referred to as the one that has been sent by the Father. Interestingly enough here the, the verb is, is the verbal form of apostle. In the book of Hebrews Jesus is called the apostle of God or the sent one of God. And, of course, the twelve apostles were the sent ones of Jesus Christ. But in Hebrews, Jesus is presented as the preeminent apostle, the first and ultimate sent one of God. But Jesus is also frequently called the coming one. A text that you will know quite well. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This, this text is also interesting in that uh, very much like the elder in Revelation chapter 5, if this is the right understanding, there's a reference to uh, Jesus as the son of David or the root of David. And Jesus is the lion of Judah, Shiloh, the sent one. Uh, another text uh, uh, that was Matthew 21, 9, Luke 7, 20. When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent, sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Uh, Christ's kingdom is also frequently called the kingdom that is coming, the coming kingdom, the kingdom that is coming into the world. So very much as he is called the coming one, his kingdom is called the coming kingdom kingdom. Uh, so I, in my mind, I think that this is, this is the strongest interpretation, but I'll leave it to you to sort through the difficulties here. Uh, I think we can take from this a very firm conclusion that rule would continue, government would continue in the midst of Judah until the Messiah made his appearance.
It's further said, and this is fully consistent with the interpretation that this is the Messiah, unto him, unto Shiloh, unto Messiah, shall the gathering of the people be. This also is, uh, the King James translators follow the Septuagint here when it says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The Hebrew yakah probably means something more like obedience, from yakah to obey. And so here, unto him shall the obedience of the people be. You remember that uh, in uh, Psalm 110, another messianic psalm, it said that, This king's people, the one sitting at the right hand of God, would be a people made willing in the day of his power. Willing, subject unto him with the obedience of the people be. Interestingly enough, also, formally in Hebrew, it's plural peoples. Unto him would be the obedience of the peoples. which seems to be a rule and a reign that goes beyond the single people of Israel. So if we take all of this in sum, this marvelous prophecy so that we might consider its fulfillment, it is said that government would continue in Judah, government over his brethren, until Shiloh, or Messiah, would make his appearance, to whom the gathering of the peoples, the Gentiles, would pertain. This is an amazing prophecy and one that has much confounded the Jews. The Jews, for the most part, have taken Shiloh to be the Messiah, but they must confess that rule has departed from Judah, that it departed from Judah long ago, and so you must draw the conclusion that either uh, this prophecy has never been fulfilled Uh, and is yet waiting fulfillment, which seems to be a thing impossible since the government fulfilled, or simply that it failed. The Jews have been put to all sorts of hard shifts and evasions, even to uh, strange mythology. Some say that, um, that the Messiah was born while rule continued in Judah, but that he, uh, and he still lives in the world for all of these ages, and yet hidden, until Israel's sins are taken away, and then he will make his appearance. But that he is now more, a man more than 2,000 years old. You see uh, how they are hard-pressed by this. But for the, for the Christian, we see that the prophecy, that ancient prophecy, was not only fulfilled in the tribe, as concerning their ascending rule and their growing maturation, but consider this. Remember, about the year 1690, Jacob prophesied a growing rule in the tribe of Judah, and then that it would pass, but that it would not pass before Shiloh or Messiah would come and gather the nations, perfectly fulfilled in our Jesus. If you want to look at some of the interesting details of this, as far as tracing the rule in Judah, uh, do have a look at... um, at full synopsis. If you have if you have his English annotations, there's a good article in that as well where uh, Poole talks about this at, at some length. But Judah continued to be a body politic with government in her midst until the time of Jesus Christ 
And then with, within one generation, that government was taken away. And so this was e- either fulfilled by 70 A.D. or it will never be uh, fulfilled. Indeed, some interpreters have looked at the, um, at the words of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar as the end of the government in Judah, where Judah gave over his government. But then Shiloh, Messiah, had already come. And the prophecy is fulfilled. And interestingly enough, we don't have to search very far for this fulfillment in that we are a part of its fulfillment. Unto this king, arising from Judah, would be the gathering of the nations. And as far as I know, none of us are Jews. We have many nations represented here. Uh, We have been gathered from many peoples and many people groups. But the Lord Jesus Christ has done it. And he has made for himself a people willing in the day of his power. When we consider such things, such miracles of wisdom, old Jacob could not have seen these things apart from the omniscient eye of the Holy Spirit of God. A miracle of wisdom indeed. With verse 11, uh, Jacob turns his eye away from Shiloh and back to Judah, I do believe, although some have tried to attach this back to uh, Messiah. Perhaps it can be done. I've not read it done convincingly just yet. But let us quickly consider yet more miracles of wisdom in verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. I don't know about you, but whenever I come to things like this in Scripture, I'm always so curious. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many times I ever read this before I actually took the time to try to understand what's being said here. It's very easy to read past. What is this binding a foal or an ass's colt to a vine and washing garments in wine? What is What does this mean? What's being referred to here? Basically, it says that Judah's portion will be plentiful. And it seems to be alluding to the fact that in particular it's going to be plentiful in wine, in grapes. The idea is basically that the vines will be so plentiful and so strong that it will be of no consequence if they are consumed or otherwise destroyed or trampled by livestock. You see, if you had a, 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 a very few, very tender grapevines, you would not tie your mule to it. Because your mule will do one of two things. He'll either eat it or he will pull it up. Because it's not uh, not really good for, or perhaps step on it, these, these sorts of things. They're not very careful uh, animals. The whole idea here is that they are so plentiful that it doesn't matter. You can just tie your animal right off to, to one of those things. And if he destroys it, he destroys it. Because we have more than what we can use or even need. And interestingly enough, um, Judah was known for its plentiful and strong vines. We'll look at this in just a moment. There's an allusion to it later on in the scripture uh, during the days of, of Solomon. 
And so you get a very, a very similar sort of idea in he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Again, the idea is that wine is so plentiful that there is no loss if it is thus wasted. It's as common as water. Uh, so normally, uh, in those arid parts of the world, uh, both water, but even more wine, as far as a drinking substance, was a precious thing. You wouldn't waste it uh, in common chores. But here it's prophesied that the land will be so plentiful with the fruit of the vine that it won't matter if it is uh, wasted. And then finally, verse 12. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. The idea here seems to be that the plenty brings health, and strength. We don't do this so much in uh, modern medicine, but the ancient people, uh, uh, the color of the eyes and of the teeth would be a great indication of of health and strength. Uh, There's also, um, so here the interpretation would be something like this, his eyes shall be darker, I, I think, Red is probably not right here. His eyes shall be darker from wine, teeth white with milk. It's also possible that there's a comparative here. His eyes shall be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk, which would tend more towards the idea of beauty. But uh, I I actually prefer the the first because it coheres more with the idea of plenty and this plenty resulting in vigor and health in the people. I can't see any reason here for much assertion of the beauty of uh, Judah or any concern for it, really. So it does seem to be that they're going to have great plenty and that great plenty is going to result in great health. Solomon lived nearly 800 years after Jacob uttered this prophecy. Jacob was no stranger to that land, the land of Judah, but he spent his last years in Egypt. But nearly 800 years after, Solomon was able to say, My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphir in the vineyards of En Gedi. So here the vineyards of En Gedi are, are remembered as notable. And En Gedi was a, um, was a dwelling in Judah. So we see some allusion to this in the scripture. And you remember that the entire land was said to be a bountiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But here it's uh, indicated that Judah would be particularly noteworthy for the fruit of the vine. Interestingly enough, you can find this in uh, uh, the rabbis as well. If we would make a good use of this, uh, when we struggle with doubts, Am I crazy? Have I lost my senses in following this Christ? Our knees tend to buckle when we follow him into difficulty in the way of the cross. We will ask ourselves, have I followed a cunningly devised fable? Is this suffering in vain? When you struggle with such doubts, remember these markers that God has given for the confirmation of our faith. Not a fable. Uh, Here we have many miracles of wisdom marvelously fulfilled as testimonies that our religion is a religion sent to us from heaven. 
the divine religion, the religion of the living and speaking God. Let us pray together.